0: Welcome to Equiocity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And this week we're joined by Dr. Claire St. Peter. You've already met Claire indirectly through our conversation with Lucy Butler. So this is really a great pairing to have these conversations back to back. We've been hearing about Lucy's classroom experience, and now we get to turn to Claire and talk about the science that's been guiding that work. So that's gonna be really fun. So let me begin with a a formal introduction. So Dr. Claire St. Peter, received her PhD in psychology with an emphasis on behavior analysis from the University of Florida in 2006. And she's currently a professor of psychology and the director of graduate training and the coordinator of behavioral analysis program area at the West Virginia University. And she serves as the current editor-in-chief for the journal Education and Treatment of Children And her research focuses on improving outcomes for children who struggle in school, identifying generative effects of extinction, determining how well reinforcement-based teaching procedures work in application by novice implementers, and teaching others to use behavioral approaches. So that's the academic bio. Clara is also a horse person, which is what ties all of this together. Because often I know people are, when you hear I th- this, I think. Oh, wait a minute. I thought this was a podcast about horses. And of course it is. And Claire has been exploring the positive reinforcement horse training community. And last January, she saw my presentation at the Clicker Expo and decided to take a deeper look at my work. So, one of the things that she enjoys very much are collaborations that allow her blend her research with her personal interests. And that fits really well with me because I enjoy that as well. So I think both Claire and I have been having a great time meeting up um, at the clinics and then in between as well. And it's given us the opportunity to have some just fascinating conversations. And so it's, it's really time that we share some of those conversations a little more broadly a little more publicly through this podcast. So, Claire, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, is there any place that you want to jump in, or shall we jump in with some questions? Where would you, what's a good starting point, do you think?
1: Let's start wherever you want to start. As you know from our previous conversations, we can cover a lot of ground sometimes. Yes,
0: absolutely. Well, let's tie Let's tie in, in part, the conversations that we've had with Lucy Butler, because Lucy's just been, she's just been bouncing all over this wonderful energy, enjoying going to school and working with what would, for me, be a group of learners that would just have me going, I have no idea, because she's had the repeaters in in high school, and these are, these are learners who have not succeeded. And we often, with horses, we have learners who are not succeeding. So this ties well together in terms of the restructuring of how she was looking at the, her teaching and how to reinforce her students and what you've referred to as the mastery-based teaching, which really gets me to put my ears forward, because it seems so different from certainly what I was exposed to in school, and it seems very different from some of the training that is being presented. So can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that?
1: Sure. Um, so I've been fortunate to be involved with public schools since I was young. So my mom was actually an elementary school public, an, a public elementary school principal. Um, and so I think is, is good daycare. She used to bring me along and, and sit me in front of some learners and say, teach them this, uh, <laughs> you know, as part of like the after school programs and whatnot. So I got really in- interested in how we promote learner success, Um, from a really young age and it also highlighted to me how some of the structure of our schools wasn't necessarily conducive to that so most schools have set curricula and set time frames and so teachers are expected to move through curricula at a certain pace so by week four you should be teaching x and by week five you should be teaching y and by week six you should be teaching z But we know about children and horses that they learn at different rates and that every individual is an individual. And so one learner might learn X in a day and another learner, it might take a week or two weeks to learn X. And so when teachers are asked to move through curricula at a set pace, you're disadvantaging some learners. You're disadvantaging the learners that need two weeks or, you know, any, any period of time longer than what the teacher has allocated to really right. master it. So this idea of mastery-based learning essentially means, in, in your language, that when a loop is clean, you get to move on. And not only do you get to move on, but you should move on. Yes. And when it's not clean, you don't move on. And so instead of progressing all of your learners through a curriculum at the same pace, the learner really dictates the pace of the instruction. So if I'm a learner that needs more time to learn a particular loop, I get more time um, until that loop is clean. And then when the loop is clean for me, that's when my instruction progresses to the next unit. And so what that helps to do is make it so that learners aren't dropped into material that they don't have the necessary prerequisites for. And we see that in human instruction all the time. And I bet you probably see it in horse instruction all the time um, where, you know, I see it. You you mentioned that I'm I'm a professor. I see it all the way up in my college classes. You know, I see students who particularly students in the modern era it's really interesting don't know how to like write mechanically like with a with a pen fast enough to take notes and so if their laptop dies on a day then they are unequipped to take notes in the class because they never learn this foundational skill that they need to be able to take notes that rapidly without typing them and so I got really attached to this idea of, of mastery-based learning, but it's really hard to pull off um, in lots of educational contexts too. Our special educators like Lucy are a great intervention point because they have often a little bit more latitude to tinker with the curriculum and go at different pieces. But I think that this idea of mastery-based learning is something that all learners would benefit from, um, even learners who don't get that like one-to-one or more individualized supports in our system.
0: And I'm thinking, I mean this is actually fascinating because I think about some of the stumbling blocks that I encounter in terms of people's expectations. so when they they come into clicker training, they come to, they I encounter them in clinics and so on, they have expectations about where they want to jump in, how they want to jump in, how they should be progressing, how fast they should be progressing. Their horse should be, why am I not already? But I should be riding second level dressage, even though, you know, my horse is missing certain prerequisites. If we have through our whole life been put in these frames in which we're just moved along, whether you've figured it out or not and you just you you sink or swim this is how it's done this is the system then of course they're going to come into this more you know it's uh, designed for the individual it's constructional we don't move on until you have the component pieces that's not going to make sense initially they're going to be saying but i should be i should be able to do to ride my horse. Why am yeah. I not riding my horse? It's, it's, it's day three of the clinic and we haven't even put a saddle on the horse.
1: It's like, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, so that really does explain a great deal in terms of how our thinking has been shaped over the years in terms of expectations.
2: Sometimes you don't always see the components that are missing. No, what you, what you see are,
0: what you see is evidence of missed components. So you see the frustration, you see hmm. the confusion. you see the, "I don't want to do this, can I do something else? Uh, if it's a horse, can I go sniff this manure pile?" Um, because you're frustrating me. Do I, you know I don't I don't really want to work my horse today It's too confusing too hard. I don't want to go to math class mm-hmm. so you see the evidence of it You may not initially be able to identify the components but you can right. definitely see the emotional behavior that indicates mm-hmm. that there are components missing.
1: Yeah, and so there's a there's actually a, a little bit of a literature on that that looks at how you slice skills for learners into meaningful little units, and so this is the same thing that we do for our horses when we think about constructional approaches and loopy training approaches to things like trailer loading, right? Where you think about all of the little steps that you need to do to get a horse in a trailer. And I think the reason that it can be so sneaky is that when done well, many of those steps are not linear steps. So they are not necessarily like march the horse closer to the trailer, um, but rather is the horse comfortable in a confined space? Is the horse comfortable if you have a trailer with a ramp? Is the horse comfortable going up and down um, inclines and declines? How comfortable is the horse backing up onto uneven surfaces? And so it's not... Um, Joe Lang has this really great quote, um, and Kent Johnston is used it, I'm actually not sure what the origin of it is, um, that says the problem you see is not necessarily the problem you need to solve. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. Um, And I think that because the problem you see is not always the problem that you need to solve, it can become challenging unless you have appropriate supports to find the Problem You need to solve in the problem that you see. Um, right. And so I think, you know, Lucy mentioned the value of coaching and how um, this is this is one of my real soapboxes. I think our teachers really need a lot more coaching for a couple of reasons. One is that it takes some expertise to look at that presenting problem and to think to yourself okay so this is what it looks like this horse won't get on a trailer what do i need to do i need to go onto a mat you know i need to do something completely different from actually on a trailer um and it's helpful to have some expertise somebody who's done that before and the other thing is it's sometimes helpful to have somebody else (laughs) just somebody who's not trying and you know in the case of teachers not trying to manage the classroom deliver the curriculum and simultaneously problem solve you know what is the core component that's missing with this particular learner um, which is why I think you know the parallel in the horse world might be video analyses and, and Dominique I know that you've talked a lot about how video has been really helpful to you because it helps to serve like as that coach, you know, you can take a step back when you're not trying to figure out, you know, which hand is the lead rope in and, you know, is it that it's windy or that the sun is going down or that it's snowy or that it rained yesterday. And you can really kind of look and try to identify what component might my learner not have mastered yet that's leading to confusion with this bigger skill.
2: And, Mm -hmm. And that takes some time to do. Definitely. So why can you parse out the name mastery-based learning? Why is it called that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the idea is that instead of moving on based on time or moving on based on some other environmental constraint, we're moving on when the learner reaches a proficiency that we think makes that skill useful for them, and so um, we call that mastering the skill. They've mastered the skill, and all mastery really means in this context is that the is that the loop is clean, um, is that the there's not a lot of unwanted behavior happening. So when the learner needs to deploy the skill, they they deploy it. You know the fancy word that we use in behavior analysis would be with a short latency right mm-hmm. like they do it promptly um and they do it reliably uh and it, that's happening those those pieces happen predictably enough and smoothly enough that that unit can be deployed in new ways so can i um can i pick up a pencil in a way that I don't have to sit and think about the, it turns out many, 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 many steps that go into grasping and picking up a pencil and turning it so that the point of the pencil is on the paper. Uh, Can I make a straight line with that pencil? Can I make a curved line with that pencil? And if I can't do all of those things with some level of proficiency, then dropping me into a class and saying, take notes, isn't gonna work. It's not gonna work no matter how invested I am, it's not gonna work, no matter how much I try. And all of that investment and try is gonna be placed on extinction in that context. All of that investment and try means that I'm not gonna be successful at taking notes because I can't pick up a pencil fast enough because I can't make a straight line and a curve fast enough. And so if then somebody, if my teacher comes along and says, you're not doing a good job taking notes, you need to be a better note taker, all that does is serve to frustrate and confuse me even more because darn it, I've tried to take notes and it it doesn't work. So we've got to get our learners so that they have that mastery um, before we, before we expect them to use or deploy those skills in new or flexible ways. So that's really what I think mastery-based learning is. And it goes by it goes by many different names. So mastery-based learning, if, if there's people out there listening to this and they're like, oh, she's talking about what I do, but I don't call it mastery-based learning. Um, let me just say like, there's a lot of people um, who call it a lot of different things. And also this idea is perhaps frustratingly not new. Um, so right. they're... You know, people who have been talking about mastery based instruction and mastery based learning and the importance of teaching good foundational skills, since there have been people talking about education. Mm -hmm. But really, even in the even in the behavior analysis community, there was a huge push towards mastery based learning, um, particularly through systems that were called personalized systems of instruction. Uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. And there was a big wave of research and adoption of personalized systems of instruction. And then it all went away for whatever reason. Interesting to think about the contingencies that lead to that. But uh, this is, these are not new, these are certainly not new ideas, but I think they're ideas worth revisiting and
2: and rethinking about. So, you know, when, when we had Lucy uh, on the podcast, certainly, you know, there's, obviously acquiring and mastering those skills. But something that really uh, came out was also that her learner were experiencing being competent. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you're learning something that is to have that experience uh, makes such a difference in your ability to continue to acquire for your love of the topic, or the exercise you're doing, you know, you don't like being in, un, incompetent. And so you don't want to continue to feel like that. And probably you'll disengage. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on the opposite, when you do feel competent, you start liking what you learn. So I don't know if that is Part of how you see it is that part of the experience for you of of the of the learning is that an important part too, or do you focus more on the actual acquiring of the skills? Because there's kind of an emotional state uh, attached to this while you're acquiring the skills. You know, you could you could learn to play the piano, but if you've been hit on the fingers, you may acquire the skills, but when you come to be 18 years old, you may tell mom that you're done with the piano playing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's always a, rein- if you're getting acquisition of something, there's probably a reinforcer there.
2: Okay. And
1: so, but you're right, Dominique, that our reinforcers can come from positive reinforcers. and And I think Lucy appropriately noted that often when people think about positive reinforcers, they think about extrinsic positive reinforcers or or what in the behavior analysis literature are called social positive reinforcers these are things that are delivered by another human so that might be the treat in a clicker training um, session or a hay stretcher pellet or the scratches you know all of those we would consider social reinforcers it might be saying to you like Hey, Dominique, that's a great question. You know, like it's wonderful to think about these things. That's a social reinforcer. Um, But there's also these positive reinforcers that in behavior analysis we call automatic reinforcers, non socially mediated reinforcers. And those are like the feelings of success, those feelings of accomplishment. They get built by the contingencies uh, and then they kind of stick with the contexts in which the contingencies are associated. So, teachers like Lucy have to become exquisite in their teaching strategies, and Lucy is, in terms of overriding these histories of their context being paired with a lot of unpleasant things. So school gets really paired with failure and being unsuccessful and not getting good grades and getting punitive grades, and then people saying, if you get another F, you're gonna get, you know. So it, they're associated with threats, um, and it's probably a lot like one of what some of our crossover horses experience, right? That the training contexts are associated with aversives and threats, and if you if you buck one more time, you know those kinds of experiences. And we've got to we've got to turn those contexts around for those learners, because I think you're right, Dominique, you know, um, if, if what we're getting is acquisition, but it's acquisition through negative, exclusively aversive control, right? Um, so negative reinforcement, punishment, then we are going to have learners who are probably um, working to escape or avoid that context. And this drives me crazy about education. So I I taught an instructional design course to our doctoral students last term. And we were talking about, you know, reinforcers in the classroom. And how do you know if your learners are engaged and how do you keep them engaged? And what do you do to get them engaged? And one of my students said, Well, you can let them out early. You can (laughs) let them out of class early. (laughs) And I said, like, well, hold the train. What did you just imply? Mm. And the student looked at me and was puzzled. And I said, Well if it's a reinforcer to get out early, what does that mean? If getting out of class early is gonna be something that the student really values. And the my, my grad student's face, like the, you could just see the blood drain right out of it, you know, um, and and she says- sounds, like, sounds
2: exactly like the horse that you reinforce by ending the work and- Yeah, it, it's sure, it sure does, doesn't it? And you could
1: see the blood drain out of my students' face. And she said, Oh my gosh, we've made all of these learning contexts aversive. Our students can't wait to get out of them. And I said, Yep. Yep. So what are we going to do? We're going to do something differently. Right. And just that moment, I think of like, oh wow, I hadn't thought about the fact that kids are excited about a day off of school. What does that mean about school? Uh, you know, it it means that we're not arranging school in ways that's really reinforcing for learners. That's right. The teachers are excited about a day off of school means that we're not (laughs) arranging school in a way that's reinforced. And we're
0: we're not talking about snow day because we're all right now as we're recording this, we're having a snowstorm. And there's that joy of being able to go play in the snow, which is different. But it's I mean, this is this is one of those great contrasting differences between command-based training and cue-based training. That in command-based training you may get a very obedient little soldier who, you know, in terms of the horse that walk trots canners when you tell it to walk trot canner and is safe to ride and we all look at that and say, oh, yes what's wrong with that picture? That's exactly what we want but the greatest reward that you can give that horse is to stop is to give him a pet on the neck, get off and take him back to his pasture, because that's the only way that he can escape the underlying threat of correction. And when you read Podysky's, uh My Horses, My Teachers, and Podysky was head of the Spanish Riding School in the 50s, I believe it was the 50s, and I mean, that's the best title ever of, of a book, My Horses, My Teachers. But Over and over in in the book, he says, you know, when your horse does something really great, give him a pet, get off and take him back to the stable because that's the greatest reward. And when I first read that years ago, pre-clicker training, I thought, oh, what a nice man, what a nice horse person. (laughs) And now I read it through a different lens and I say, oh, that's so interesting, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. we get the clicker trained horses where you have to go through a, a teaching process to teach them how to go back to the barn because they don't want the training to stop. And so while we're struggling to, to convince our clicker-trained horse that, yes, we really do have to stop now, could we leave the arena? The command-based horse is going, oh, please, you can't drag me in there. You know, the contrast is huge. It's, yeah. 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 And I think,
1: you know, an, another layer is what happens when that threat goes away for whatever yes. other reason, but all you have is responding that's under the control of escaping or avoiding a threat. And so um years ago, I had this little Tennessee walker and then I got from my husband, because you know, yes, yeah. Okay. Um and I went to try her out because my husband rides only under, only under duress, only under averse <laughs> <immersive> of control. <laughs> and she was a gem, man, the great little horse, very calm, very responded to everything, um, took her out on the roads, very quiet. But boy, could that horse discriminate between a rider that knew how to ride and a rider who didn't know how to ride. Mm -hmm. And if you put somebody on her that had a balanced seat and was a reasonable rider, she was a dream. It turns out that when you put my husband on her, she would drop her head and drop her head and drop her head until the reins got real long, and then she would pick her head up, spin and bolt for home. (laughs) You know, and so she had been taught that if you did that and somebody could catch you with it, that it was gonna be bad news. But you know, these riders that sit kind of off, they don't seem real balanced, they don't catch you, you know, and yes. so you can you can take advantage of that. And I think when you remove when you remove those threats under other circumstances, I think people probably get really surprised at, at what comes what comes out of it. I,
0: I think you this know? is a really important uh, rabbit hole to explore a little bit. Because in the first cohort of clicker-trained horses that I worked with, they were all horses that I had a, relation, a direct relationship with. So they were clients' horses that we were teaching, sharing the clicker training with. And we had a ball. The horses were, were wonderful. They picked it up really fast. There were no, there were no stumbling blocks. And then we started, I started sharing the clicker training more widely. So the next cohort in were shared with people that I did not know directly. I was not directly working with their horses. And I started to hear about these horses that when people began to clicker train, the horse absolutely fell apart. You got just the most horrific behaviors popping out. The horse was biting at them. The horse, all these, 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 uh, really aggressive, dangerous behaviors that they said, you know, my horse was good as gold before clicker trading, and now I have this monster. I ruined him. I ruined him, right. And it took me a while to understand that what we were seeing was his past, Mm -hmm. and that what we were seeing was what punishment had been suppressing. And it was sort of like you suppress it and push it down and push it down. And when you take the lid off, it really explodes. So is is that indeed, I'm sure there are many explanations. Some of them were simply people were clumsy in their handling skills. And when they tidied up the handling skills and, and were no longer as confusing because they were so inconsistent, the behaviors all went away. But there was, there were definitely this cohort of horses that, uh, had had been suppressed with punishment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you see the same kind of thing in all in all contexts, right? Uh, when when you're getting control of behavior, not not because of positive reinforcers that build that sense of success that you were talking about, yeah. Dominique. That build that joy for learning, that build that enthusiasm to engage and stay engaged and to figure out puzzles because there is an answer and nothing is going to go horribly wrong if I make a misstep on the first try. Somebody's going to step in and help me is what's going to happen. That I think creates a different, um, a different history yes. than learners whose histories are things are hard Lots of behavior, like I'm going to do. I'm going to do this because if I don't, something bad will happen. Um, And and you can see how there would just be a different emotional layer.
0: And if I if I get the answer if I get the answer wrong, and I can't figure it out, then something bad will happen. So maybe I should just bite you now because that's how I'm going to protect myself. Because I know I'm not going to. I know I'm going to fail.
1: Right. Or horses, I think, I think this is probably true with both humans and horses, although the horse side is coming to me faster. Um, horses that are, I will just stand here.
0: Yes. I will just stand
1: here like a statue because if I move, if I blink, if I try, if I step out of line, it's going to go, it might go bad. So I will I will be perfectly calm and perfectly still, even though the horse is
2: probably neither calm nor still, but frozen. You know, I've I've heard once a trainer talking about a horse um, that is very dear to me, who was using a lot of punishment and negative reinforcement and when i questioned this trainer he said well it's a very cold horse and that's the only way you can get something out of him yeah
0: and we we know that that is definitely not the case
2: no, no. this horse that, is not a cold horse so. you
0: know that's
1: that's an interesting that's an interesting perspective so we've been talking We've been talking a lot about the contingencies that build enthusiastic learners. And I think that the fact that we started with the contingencies shows a assumption that we're making um, that I think is safe for all three people on this, to say that it's safe that all three people on this call will make, um, which is that circumstances are what are, are a huge driver. In what happens behaviorally, that we're looking to the environment, that we're looking to contingencies to say, oh, there are histories that lead to this kind of responding in these situations, that there are reinforcers that make a difference. But that idea of this is a cold horse is very much a um, trait-based perspective, that there are horses that are hard horses or that are cold horses, and that the language about it leaves you to think that there's very little that can be done about that. You know, we have learners that are slow learners. You know, right. we have learners that, that are labeled with categories that, that give them extra special education services in schools, but that cause them to have labels um, like they, they are, you know, they are this, they are impulsive. And so I think that that perspective makes it really easy to blame the learner when things go wrong. Um, Pat Fryman's got a great paper. Pat Fryman is a a notable behavior analyst. Um, He works at a place called Boys Town, um, which is uh, essentially a a residential facility for children who are um, experiencing major behavioral disruption started as an orphanage. Um, And so he published a paper uh, last year, I think, called um, There's No Such Thing as a Bad Boy. Uh, and so in that paper he talks about how this idea or this blame perspective allows us to to kind of turn our backs on learners because that that horse is a cold horse that horse is a you know is a dangerous horse or a bad horse and therefore it's not my fault as the trainer that the horse is you know, not responding the way that I want them to. Right. That that horse is the problem. We see the same thing in education, right? It's not like, don't look at me as the instructor for the fact that my students aren't learning. Um, it's their fault. They're slow learners. They're from disadvantaged backgrounds. Like we should just absolve ourselves of the need to teach them. And I think there's this circumstances view that that you all take in your horse training. And then I think, you know, behavior analysts take, and our approach to behavior change more broadly gives a lot of hope. You know, there's a there's a lot of a lot of joy and hope in that perspective because because there's no such thing as a bad boy. There's there's no such thing as a bad horse. Um, there are horses that are more difficult to work with than other horses. There are human learners that are more difficult yes. to work with than other human learners. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's something inherently wrong or broken about them. And if we can arrange environments, we may, be, in the way that they
2: need them, we may be able to help
1: them. And I like that.
2: So, you know, we, because there's, if you turn it around for a second and look at it from a positive perspective, culturally we'll hear things like, you know, I was just again with a friend who has a German shepherd and he was talking with someone else who also had a German Shepherd, and they they were going on and on about how loyal German Shepherds are. So it was a very positive thing, you know. It wasn't a bad label; it was a really good label that they were saying, "Oh, German Shepherds—they're so great, they're so loyal, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And you know, I I kept thinking, well, okay, in this case, it's probably not doing that much harm, but it's still. Uh, It's still a label and, you know, there may be traits in different breeds. You know, Mm -hmm. we talk sometimes about nature and nurture. Where are you at in all that?
1: Oh, I like this question.
2: Um, (laughs) So the professor that got
1: me interested in behavior analysis, um, his name was was Henry Pennypacker. um, And I am very fortunate to have been his student. Uh, he's the one who introduced me to mastery-based learning. So like all things come all the way around. Uh, but he has this very long definition of behavior and, and I will spare you the whole thing, but the crux of it is that behavior is the interaction between organism and environment. And so I really like that definition of behavior because it means that, Behavior is ephemeral. It's changing. It's it's part of this interaction that as organism changes or as environment changes, we would expect behavior to change. It doesn't rule out that there are, and in fact, it encourages the idea that there are genetic predispositions or proclivities so that German shepherds put in an environment where being loyal is reinforced may be particularly quick at learning that. Whatever behaviors constitute being loyal, they may be particularly quick about learning those responses um, because we can't separate out what is organism and what is environment. You know, if you're feeling crummy on a particular day, um, that's probably all three of those things, right? It's probably you're feeling crummy as a behavior. You're probably feeling that way because of something in your external environment and your reinforcement history as an organism. And it probably leads you to do other things on that day than you might do otherwise. So all of these factors are, are intertangled. um, And I think to say, well, this is the portion that is environment and, you know, it's 62.67%, you know, like, I don't think that any of those constructs exist without the other constructs, which is a it's an interesting approach to it.
0: Yes, that uh, you you can't have one without the other. You know?
2: right? Yeah, definitely. So if so, it's saying um, the the experience for the learner is different if we use positive reinforcement. But it's not that simple, is it? You don't just take a learner who has had very bad association and just switch to positive reinforcement, and all goes well. That's not how it works, does it? Uh, I wish that was how it worked. It's not as simple as that. <laughs> it's often,
1: it is often slash almost always not as simple as that. No. You know, I think we all have we all have learning histories and they start before we're born Um, and every minute of every day, they get longer and more complicated. Uh, And so part of the reason. So I I tend to do a lot of work with um, early learners. So um, I work a lot with kids right now. Right now I've got a project going where we're supporting parents of really young children. So ages two to four who were born addicted to opioids and went through opioid withdrawal at birth. Um, I spent a lot of time working with elementary public education students because I think if I can change your trajectory when you're little, A, there's less of that aversive history to overcome. And so it makes my job a little easier, selfishly. Um, And B you have fewer years ahead of you that might be part of these coercive cycles of, you know, people are pushing on you. So you push back and it gets, you know, more and more kind of coercive as the years go by. And when we get learners who are like Lucy's learners, who are in high school, who may have had, you know, 10 years of negative experiences in schools her job is a lot her job is a lot harder than my job working with that same learner when they are in kindergarten because that learning history is so different and so much shorter um, and I think it's the same with all animals right so when you get a when you get a, a brand new horse and and you buy them as a two-year-old you don't know what has happened to them for the first two years but they're probably really malleable and and you know you can change a lot of that if you get them at 22 and they are coming from an abusive situation where they've been passed around and gone through auctions and, you know, been crammed into bad situations with ill health, it's probably a lot harder. Um, So all of that history, we carry all of that history with us and how we respond to the, to the current environment. Um, And it's, it's a good thing because it makes every learner who they
0: are. Yes. and it it speaks to the whole approach that we take with the clicker training, where, in a sense, we're we're stepping out of the stream. So we step out of the stream by changing the environment. We're not taking the horses into the arena and starting, in the arena with the horse saddled and bridled and let's get on and ride and oh yes we'll we'll clicker train we're starting in the barn with a stall guard across the door holding a target out in front of them and that's such a, a novel situation for most horses that we're not we're not dragging in to that particular uh experience we're not dragging along all the history so we have a shot at building something that is clean and a clean loop and then you just keep adding and adding and it's it's like it's a foot race of can i build enough new repertoire before i collide with something that triggers the old reaction patterns Mm -hmm. and that's really what we're and it's what we're we're in with a lot of novice handlers, it's can I give you enough tools and enough skills and enough new behaviors that you can teach your horse a broad enough repertoire that you can build new instead of trying to fix something that's old and broken.
1: Yeah, and I'm really interested in that, right? So you use this very fancy language when you introduced me about generative effects of extinction and that's really what what um, my interest in generative effects of extinction are so we know that there are many ways that old behavior comes back um, one of them is that when an organism experiences when a learner experiences extinction um, old behavior comes back and it can come back with a vengeance and it often doesn't take very much extinction for it to come back. Uh, so a student, one of my doctoral students, Tanya Marsteller and I years ago did a study where we decreased the rate of reinforcement. Um, so we were delivering a reinforcer following every instance of a behavior at first, and then we shifted to seven and 10. So we dropped out three reinforcers. So it's not very many no. reinforcers, Um, And we got old behavior came back, came back immediately, came back when you only dropped out three reinforcers out of every 10. And so these even like little, little periods of extinction, um, they can bring old behavior back. And so that's called resurgence in the literature. Uh, But there's also other forms um, of ways that behavior can come back, particularly in extinction. Um, And one of another one is is called renewal and that's just the change in context. So that is, um, you know, I was I've been working with you in this context and then we drop you back into an old context and that old behavior all comes back. Um, And so in 2018, um, there were one of my a couple of my colleagues. um, So Stephanie Kincaid and Andy Latal. Uh, both from West Virginia University, they published a paper where they term this super resurgence. And what super resurgence is, it sounds bad, it is bad. Um, what super <laughs> resurgence is is when you have a little bit of extinction that happens when you go back to that original context. So you could think about this as like you're working, and you mentioned this foot race. Um, you're working and you're progressing, you're getting clean loops, you're in this foot race before you collide with the saddle, which is something that is an old context, but also probably the skills that you're teaching are getting a little bit more complex. And so for your, your handler, for your, your trainer, your trainer has got to kind of be spot on. Cause there's now, you know, I've got a saddle in this hand and a clicker in this hand and horse here, you know? And so if they start to miss a little bit, and there's a little bit of, of unplanned extinction, and now the saddle's there. So there's this old context. Yeah. You are like setting yourself up for all of that old behavior to come back and to come back oh, wow. um, with some force. And so it's, it's like the, the perfect storm of unwanted behavior returning when you have those two things happen. And my guess is that that happens more often than we think about.
0: I would suspect that it does. That's a really interesting thing to think about. And again, it shows the importance of this really systematic building of skills. So when, for example, when we're doing that very first targeting lesson, and you know, because you've you've been going through the clinics, how much I fuss the details. You know, how you're, you're... that you're you're feeding with your left hand on the left side and you're moving so that the horse is in good balance and you're in good balance and you're, you know, it's shoulders over hips, over feet, et cetera, et cetera. Because if I wait until you're getting on to start talking about shoulders over hips, over feet, it's way too late. Mm-hmm. And we'll be in exactly the situation that you're describing. Wow. And I just hadn't appreciated the real importance of building those, uh, because we're we're building some very high level skills. But we're beginning it in the very early steps where each little piece is is doable.
1: Yes. And repeating it. Yes. And getting to the point that you have mastery, just to loop everything back to mastery learning, yes. right? Like, so rarely do I see you in the clinics coach people to go to something more complicated if their reinforcer delivery isn't a clean loop. And I think that's important because when you get that clean loop on the reinforcer delivery, so you have a person who can click, reach smoothly in their pocket or their pouch, pull out the reinforcer, deliver it, you know, with the hand that's on the the same side as the horse um, and with their arm extended. So they're feeding away and to do that without slowness or interfering behavior. That's how you build that as a habit too. So that now when I have the saddle in this hand and my horse is being a little more squirrely than usual, and I've got other things going on and I'm trying to think about what it is that I'm teaching today and like what You know, do I need to step my criteria back? I'm not also having to think about where is my treat pouch? Is my hand away from my body? Am I falling over? Am I pushing my horse onto his forehand so that he's going to stumble over? Because you can't possibly think about all those things
0: at once. No, you can't. And that, that higher level skill of can I do these physical actions and simultaneously Assess the effect that they are having on my learner and What changes do I need to to make in response to what has just occurred? Whether that's to back my training up a little bit or I need to move my training on but that that skill of being able to assess While you are training is also being learned through all of that mm-hmm. We don't come knowing how to do that or are able to do that by any stretch of the imagination. That is an acquired skill. But I just, I had not thought about that form of resurgence Interesting. I want to stop us here. I think this concept of super resurgence is something that needs to be mulled over and I don't want to just keep going and have that get lost in the midst of all all these other great gems that Claire is sharing with us. She's about to describe the three ways that you get a relapse into old behavior, and I'm sure you want to go on and hear about that now, but I really do want us all to pause and think about what we've talked about so far, beginning with mastery-based learning and then all the other pieces of the puzzle that we've woven in that brought us to super resurgence and how much that emphasizes the importance of working systematically. So we'll stop here and pick up again next time with the three ways in which you get a relapse into old behavior. As always, if you want to learn more uh, do please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. There you can find the details about Science Camp and the Shears virtual clinics and my online courses. If you want a great introduction to applied behavioral analysis, remember we also have a course on the Equosity.com website that we did with Mary Hunter, and that's an audio course that is available And just go to equiocity.com to learn about the details there. So that's uh, all the reminders. Next week, Claire will start us off with a discussion of the ways in which you get a relapse of behavior. So until then, stay well and have fun with your horses.